Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Norman Solomon, author of the new book titled War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, who explains why he believes it's time to reassess the U.S. war on terror. Dr. Peter Kalmus a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory who talks about his climate activism and the importance of sharing emotional truth as well as scientific facts. And Paul Glaze of the Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition who discusses the September 5th RICO indictment of 61 Stop Cop City activists that observers charge criminalizes dissent and sets an extremely dangerous precedent. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a historic ruling, Mexico's Supreme Court threw out all federal criminal penalties for abortion, ruling that national laws prohibiting the procedure are unconstitutional and violate women's rights, overturning a law that dates back to the 1930s. Mexico joined several other Latin American nations, including Argentina, Uruguay, and Cuba, in legalizing abortion in a socially conservative region dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. The ruling legalizes abortion in all federal facilities which provide health care to 70% of the population. However, 20 of Mexico's 32 states still criminalize abortion. While judges in those states will have to abide by the court's decision, further legal efforts will be required to remove all remaining penalties. The move comes a year after the United States Supreme Court reversed the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling. Twenty-two states have now banned abortion or restrict the procedure in early pregnancy. Mexico City became the first jurisdiction to legalize abortion up to 12 weeks in 2007. Eleven other states followed with their own rules, expanding access. Despite legal victories, progress on abortion rights has been slow. In the southern state of Guerrero, which decriminalized abortion in 2020, there are 22 active investigations against women accused of terminating their pregnancies. Early in 2023, advocates for restoring voting rights for convicted felons were making progress. State legislators in Minnesota and New Mexico passed laws to create a pathway for convicted felons to win back their voting rights after being released from prison. Over the last decade, some 1.5 million convicted felons have won back their voting rights. But in recent months, state officials in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia have taken steps to make it far more difficult for people with felony convictions to register to vote leading to lawsuits filed by voting rights activists in both state and federal courts. Stateline News Network noted that since the Civil War, states have generally stripped people with felony convictions of their voting rights. Many of those laws are rooted in racism and specifically targeted formerly enslaved black people. In some states, disenfranchisement lasted for life. 
While it became more difficult for people with felonies to vote in certain states this year, the movement to expand voting rights is still making progress in other states. Arizona U.S. Senator Kirsten Sinema, who recently left the Democratic Party to become an independent, has long been backed by the private equity industry and Wall Street hedge fund executives. When Sinema first ran for the Senate in 2018, she was funded by Leon Black, then CEO of Apollo Global Management. Two years later, Black was forced out due to its close ties to Jeffrey Epstein, who ran an infamous sex trafficking ring. Now, Black has been accused of raping a 16-year-old girl 20 years ago, and the U.S. Senate is investigating Black's $150 million payment to Epstein for estate planning and tax services. The Intercept reports that Cinema's coziness with the finance industry influenced her votes against key Democratic priorities, including legislation to raise taxes on the nation's wealthiest citizens and killing efforts to close the carried interest tax loophole that benefits private equity managers. As an independent, Cinema will be competing against both a Democrat and a Republican in the 2024 general election. Although she's still receiving private equity campaign donations, her Democratic opponent, Representative Ruben Gallego, is leading in recent polls and outraised her in the first quarter of this year, suggesting that her continued allegiance to unpopular Wall Street-connected corporate donors will have a lasting negative impact. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On September 11th this year, People across the U.S. honored the lives of 3,000 men, women, and children who died in the terrorist attacks on New York City's World Trade Center, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and aboard the airliner that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, 22 years ago. 6,000 more were injured on that dark day. Some 3,000 first responders and others have died since 9-11 from cancers and respiratory disease linked to the recovery work at the World Trade Center site. The human costs of the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil are incalculable, and so too are the lives lost in the many wars around the world that followed. According to a recent report from Brown University's Costs of War project, titled How Death Outlives War, 50 scholars and scientists reviewed the latest research and found more than 906,000 people including 387,000 civilians, died directly from post-9-11 wars in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Another 38 million people have been displaced or made refugees. The report estimated that the post-9-11 U.S. war on terrorism may have indirectly caused at least 4.5 million deaths and cost the U.S. federal government $8 trillion. Your reporter spoke with author and longtime peace activist Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org. Here he talks about why he believes it's time to reassess the U.S. war on terror 
and some of the important issues covered in his new book titled War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. When we look at the terrible crimes against humanity that occurred on September 11, 2001, it's really a grave moment to just contemplate the souls that were extinguished, the injuries as well as the deaths, the grief of those who were left behind, the loved ones who will never be with those who they loved, suddenly taken from them. And part of the huge distance between human beings that the United States government has created and accentuated in the last 22 years since 9-11 has been to essentially establish de facto two tiers of grief, the grief that matters and the grief that doesn't. And certainly all of the grief and suffering that resulted from what happened 22 years ago should be validated, should be honored, should be respected. The problem that I write about in the book War Made Invisible is that in response to the crimes against humanity that occurred on 9-11 22 years ago, the U.S. government has engaged in a so-called war on terror that has been ongoing crimes against humanity ever since, beginning in October of 2001 with the attacks on Afghanistan. And we don't hear in the U.S. mass media or political discourse the extent of the suffering of the crimes of the deaths that have occurred in ostensible response to, or we were told, retribution and retaliation uh, after the crimes of 9-11. In fact, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in several other countries, the Brown University Kosovo Project has documented that more than 400,000 civilians were killed by the post-9-11 U.S. wars. So if we want to look at it in mathematical terms, for every person, every innocent soul uh, who was killed on 9-11, the United States wars have extinguished the lives of more than 100 equally innocent souls since then. So what does that mean? It means that we have been often quite passively people in the United States observing, watching, often approving of a situation where displaced rage, anger, fear, and militarism have taken one life after another life, adding up to more than 400,000 civilians who were just as innocent as those who were in the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. Norman, in your book, you examine our government's post-Vietnam strategy to wage war around the world and minimize anti-war opposition and protests that we saw during the U.S. wars in Southeast Asia in the 60s and 70s, and thereby overcome the so-called Vietnam syndrome. The fact that we use all this uh, aerospace uh, precision, quote-unquote, guided missiles, cruise missiles, uh, as, as well as more, more recently, these uh, weaponized drones to attack groups of people or individuals. Maybe you could just summarize that as well as the media role and how the United States war planners overcame what they claimed to be the Vietnam syndrome. 
Even during the last years of the Vietnam War, as U.S. troops were gradually being withdrawn, the actual violence was increased through the bombing runs, the tremendous use of uh, firepower from the air in Vietnam, as well as in Cambodia and, and Laos. And so it's a political configuration that seems to war makers in Washington to be a solution to defuse the extent of anti-war agitation and opposition in our own country because it's less visible, because there are fewer U.S. troops involved. And that's been the pattern in recent years as well, and it's had political effects. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote uh, this book was to say that, contrary to the title, war made invisible is absolutely unacceptable morally and ethically. We need to have the visibility of war in order to stop it. And that means to recognize in human terms around the world, including in our own country, these destructive effects. And when U.S. news media basically play along with the hiding of the real effects of war, which has been a routine dynamic, then we become distanced from our own humanity. In our names, with our tax dollars, the United States continues to kill, continues to maim, continues to, frankly, terrorize with drones, and yet somehow we are encouraged to believe that that's not the case. That was Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org and author of the new book titled War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Find related analysis and commentary on our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Dr. Peter Kalmas is a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's also a climate activist who's been arrested in actions organized by two groups that promote nonviolent direct action to address the climate crisis, Extinction Rebellion and Scientist Rebellion. Kalmas also works within his community to help neighbors, cities, schools, and churches access technology to use less fossil fuel and reduce their carbon emissions. His award-winning book, titled Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution, provides real-life solutions to move away from a consumerist lifestyle that isn't making most people happy. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dr. Kamas when both were at a protest against the Mountain Valley Pipeline the week of September 4th. That controversial pipeline would send frack gas through 302 miles of rural Virginia and West Virginia. Here, Dr. Kamas talks about his work, the complicated role of a climate scientist and activist, and the importance of sharing emotional truth as well as scientific facts about the climate crisis. I would say the project that I'm the most excited about right now is projecting uh, health impacts of extreme heat on the human body. So like, you know, um, under different emission scenarios by 2035 or 2040 or whenever, whatever year, uh, how that's going to affect humans in terms of how many people will experience humid heat conditions that cause them to become hyperthermic. So they, they can't keep their core temperature from rising anymore. Uh, yeah, I feel like heat waves that kill a million plus people 
Uh, and then heat, heat waves that kill 10 million plus people in just a few days in a particular region and then on up from there. That's the pathway we're on right now with all these pipelines and drilling and world leaders and both political parties in the United States expanding fossil fuels as quickly as they can. That, that's the path we're on right now. But I, my goal is to try to quantify that um, with some degree of precision, which hasn't been done yet. Did Scientist Rebellion come out of Extinction Rebellion? Not, well, not exactly. I mean, I think there was a sense among many scientists, uh, climate scientists, that possibly scientists could play a um, specifically important role by expressing urgency through their actions and through their words, as opposed to just writing papers, doing science. So personally, my theory of change has to do with, like, does the public have uh, mechanisms to sort of imagine that we're still not in an emergency? Um, I personally believe we are in a climate emergency, but I feel like the way psychology works is that for most people, if there's a plausible way for them to avoid that acceptance that we are in an emergency, they will take that because then their lives can go on as normal. They don't have to have all that anxiety and all that grief. It's just a much easier path. And if scientists don't seem very worried and they're not doing things like civil disobedience and they seem all calm and they're saying, stay calm, everybody, like, as some scientists still are doing today, the public's like, well, those guys, those scientists, those men and women are the, the people, they're on the, in the front row. They, they're the ones who are the experts in what's happening to, to the climate. If they're not worried, then why should I worry right now? So, you know, I've long kind of experienced that uh, it's important to, to present uh, emotional truth as well as scientific factual truth um, to sort of actually connect with people and to start cutting through that multi-layer onion of climate denial that we all sort of start out with, right? Is it actually difficult for scientists who are so public about their political perspectives and, you know, taking a side, as it were, is it hard to stay employed as a scientist? Um, so I've only been arrested twice, and, and I would have been arrested probably 10 times by now if I thought I could keep my job and keep doing those arrestable actions. So yeah, it's, it's pretty tricky. Um, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how I can contribute the most to stopping global heating and uh, earth breakdown, uh, how I can contribute the most to this movement to save life on planet earth. Um, and it's, it's not always clear. Um, the science is really important, I think, especially the science of extreme heat. But there's a lot of people that are doing good work there, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not irreplaceable by any means. Same thing with the arrestable actions. You know, there's a lot of people now that are taking those risks and doing arrestable actions. I've decided to devote my life to uh, doing everything I can, and I'm just trying to kind of figure out what's the most useful way for me to apply myself. It really irks me that NASA as an institution is kind of, I guess you could say in some sense, ashamed of my climate activism. <laughs> I don't know. To me, climate activists are doing probably the most important work on planet Earth right now, bar none. And our institutions are lagging behind and they haven't realized that. That was Dr. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and climate activist. Learn more about Kalmus's work and the group's Scientist Rebellion by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
www.thepacificpacific.org. On August 14th, Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis announced that former President Donald Trump and 18 others were indicted by an Atlanta grand jury under the state's Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO Act, accusing Mr. Trump and some of his former top aides of orchestrating a criminal enterprise to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Less than a month later, on September 5th, Georgia's Republican Attorney General Chris Carr announced that same grand jury had indicted 61 activists under RICO for their actions opposing the construction of a proposed $90 million, 85-acre police training facility to be built in the Weelawnee Forest, southeast of Atlanta. Those charged include a legal observer arrested at a protest, activists who distributed flyers, and others who ran a bail fund. During two years of escalating protest actions against what opponents call Cop City, police have made mass arrests, including 42 activists who are charged with domestic terrorism. In January, Georgia State Patrol officers killed 26-year-old Manuel Tehran, who was shot 57 times while they cleared a forest encampment of protesters. Police claims of self-defense in Tehran's killing have been called into question by the county medical examiner's office. Your reporter spoke with Paul Glaze, a spokesperson with the Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition. Here he discusses the dangerous precedent being set in this RICO indictment and other developments in the campaign to hold a citywide referendum to stop construction of the proposed Atlanta police training facility. You know, what we find is that as activists in the South, is that a lot of the tactics that you will see happen across the country often kind of get test piloted down here. Um, And what this is, is a very broad attempt to criminalize participating in movement. We know that because when they filed these RICO RICO charges, when when they put this down, they dated it to the day that George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, which was almost a full year before anyone in Atlanta knew about Cop City. So it's not just about Cop City. Uh, in Atlanta, they say when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And Chris Carr is showing us who he is. And like to be clear, this is a man who wants to run for governor, and he's got no clear lane, right? Brad Raffensperger, our secretary of state, is presumed to run, and he's the guy that stood up to Trump. And Kelly Leffler is a, is a former U.S. senator, and she's richer than God. So you've got this guy here who kind of needs to find a, a lane for himself and a, and a way to stick out from the crowd. And he's really just throwing everything in the kitchen sink that he can think of to be provocative. Um, but it is dangerous because, again, we're talking about people charged with with racketeering because they got reimbursed for glue, like $11.48 reimbursement because they got some poster supplies. This is Chris Carr. And so, you know, we take him at his word that he's trying to criminalize protests writ large and any substantive opposition to the way that public safety is done in this country. And it's a threat to him. This is a guy who did a robocall as the president of the Republican Attorney General's Association. Uh, recruiting people for January 6th. He he could not be more clear about where he is coming from, and that is why I know sometimes it can feel like you need to run from that, and that we gotta we gotta play it safe. 
you can't run from someone like that. They only will take advantage of you doing so. You got to step up right then and just bop them on the nose. Paul, tell us about the referendum. You've gathered signatures to have a citywide referendum on, on whether or not to proceed with this, this cop city training facility. The mayor's office, the officials there in City Hall have uh, uh, attempted to derail the move for a referendum. And I wonder if you talk about some of the tactics they've used, including signature matching and, and similar things they've done to slow walk the whole process. Uh, a lot of a lot of what you hear down here is like, oh, you just need to go. You're doing it the wrong way. You got to go about it the right way. So we said, all right, bet. And we decided that we were going to try and pursue the citywide referendum to put this to a vote before the people. Immediately, the first thing you have to do is you have to go ask them for a form. You got to say, hey, I want to do this. Can you just give me the piece of paper that people sign and we'll make copies and do the thing? And they stonewalled on that. And they said then they came up with some things that weren't actual legal reasons according to the law that weren't on the paper. We needed an extra space here. We needed an extra part of the form. So we said, all right, no, that's fine. We'll do that. That's fine. We'll do that. We did that. We turned it back in. They still slow walked it. Finally, we get it. Immediately, the mayor comes out and says, we know that if they do this honestly, they won't be successful. There's no way. And what that told us right then was that here in the cradle of the civil rights movement, a mayor of Atlanta was willing to set us up for voter fraud because that's what it is. When someone comes out and says you can't do this and be successful unless you cheat, they're telegraphing what their next move is going to be. So we went out and we got 116,800 signatures. And when we were all set to turn in, you know, the original deadline comes up and it's time to turn these in. And we're getting ready to, and all of a sudden we start getting these rumors out of City Hall that, oh, they're going to use this process called signature matching, which is where they take the signature you wrote on the petition form and they compare it to whatever signature they have on file. And usually that means the one you signed with the big stylus on an iPad when you went to get a driver's license. And if there's anything different, according to you know the opinion of the person looking at it, then they say, oh, we don't think that's the same person, and they discount it. And they said, "Oh no, we're not. We're not going to. We're not going to do that. Well, you know, we are going to compare them, right? But it's not going to. It's not signature matching. We're just going to look at the signature and compare it. And if does it look like it's the same, then there's a problem. And so this is the kind of double speak that the city has engaged in over and over. You know, they told us they were going to respect this process, and then immediately they told the court that uh, actually, you know, this whole thing's invalid. I mean, you can't cancel the lease. We've already signed the lease. We signed the paperwork. What are we going to do?" write new papers. This has gone back and forth. Every chance they've had, they have taken any and all opportunities to argue anything they can think of, even if it doesn't make sense, just to delay the process long enough that they can start laying down concrete. They're just trying to delay us long enough that they can put the foundations for this building down uh, and start building it up and make it a moot point. We keep telling them the harder you make it to go the legal way, the more likely people are going to just go out there and stop it themselves. That was Paul Glaze, a spokesperson with a Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition. Learn more about groups working to stop construction of the police training facility in Atlanta by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, KCBP in Modesto, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.